Uh, Lord, help us as we open your word today. May your spirit fill in what is lacking in the instrument. Display your strength and weakness. Uh, Give us all ears to hear, hearts to obey. May we be agreeable to and gladly welcome your work in us and not be stiff-necked, resistant. Lord, on this cold day, may our hearts be warm towards you and May we receive your word as we ought uh, to your glory and our blessing. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in the time, in my time before you, these next several weeks, I don't know that we'll do it every single week and we'll have other things where it seems appropriate to teach on something else, but I want us to work through uh, the uh, New Testament epistle we know as 1 Corinthians. You can do 1 Corinthians if you want to. It's becoming more popular you know when that came up you know the two corinthians was a faux pas it's a, it is a faux pas in america but you know the europeans you, you, i listen to a lot of sermons and i you hear a lot of europeans that say two timothy and two corinthians and things like that but i want i want us to look through first corinthians uh, i have a fairly complete record of what i've preached over the years this is our 25th year and I have, a, I have a fairly complete record. of uh, I have an Excel spreadsheet that I look at. It's fairly complete because I only update it. I think of it a couple times a year, once or twice a year maybe, sometimes maybe a whole year before I update it and look at it. And sometimes they get lost, you know. There's no more bulletins from that, you know. So I don't know what I preach, but it's pretty, it's pretty complete. And, uh, and so I consult it once in a while to see, well, have I ever taught that? When was the last time I taught that or, or, or something like that? And uh, I was surprised, or I really was surprised that I had never, ever taught through the book of 1 Corinthians. I certainly taught from it, of course, you know, the certain chapters, and, you know, the, the, and, but uh, never through it, which seems so unlikely since my place in the history of biblical scholarship is absolutely linked to 1 Corinthians. I'll bet you didn't know I had a place in the history of biblical scholarship. (laughs) Well, let me explain it to you so that maybe you'll be a little impressed or maybe you'll be a little hopeful about what's to come. Because I I do. This is my copy right here. This is this big book. This is my copy of uh, uh, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. As I've had this a long, long time. It's a kind of a dictionary, but they call it a lexicon because it's confined to uh, the Greek language as it's used in the New Testament. It doesn't, you know, if a word does, never comes up in the New Testament, it's not a Greek word. It's not in. It's not really in here. It has to be from the New Testament or or early Christian literature. So it's a, but. You know, of that, of the, you know, this uh, Greek language lexicon of the New Testament early Christian literature, it is the gold standard. I mean, it is by far, whatever seminary you go to, it's this book, this book. No matter what, you know, no matter the kind of uh, seminary or whatever, or what kind of scholarship you're doing in the New Testament, it goes back to uh, the work of a German scholar named Walter Bauer, who the early 20th century. So that's how long, you know, early 20th century is when this was first written. It was translated into English in the mid 20th century uh, by a uh, scholar's name Arndt, last name Arndt, and uh, last name Gingrich. 
And so is Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich. We call it a bag. Bag. It's in bag. You know, look it up in bag, B-A-G. And so since then, it's picked up. And this, this one doesn't have it because this one's a little older. But since then, it's picked up an editor named Danker because those other, the first three gentlemen are no longer living. You know, but it's, the book goes on. And it's the, it really, it really is, you know, the gold standard. It's like Webster's is to the English Dictionary, uh, maybe, or, you know, what Chilton's is to car manuals, Emily Post to manners. You know, it's, it's just the standard. The Harbrace to English grammar, if you, or Turabian to writing. You know, it, it's, the, it's the absolute go-to uh, reference for word meanings in the New Testament. Uh, in this book, the entries under each Greek word listed, there are references to other scholarly works because, you know, it's every single word, every single word in the New Testament. And, and, it's, uh, and so there's articles about them, a little short articles, but in those articles, you'll make reference to longer articles that people have written, theological journals, you know, scholarly journals and things like that. And in 1950, Martin O. Massinger, a guy named Martin O. Massinger, wrote an article for a theological journal on the Apostle Paul's use of the word faith, pistis, in the New Testament. And his reference to his article, I highlighted it. <laughs> it's right there. And in the article on pistis, actually, he's right on the part where his, uh, the word faith is used as the body of what you believe. You know, the faith once delivered to the saints. And he says, M.O. Massinger, Bibliotheca Sacra, 107, 1950, pages 181 to 194. So if you want to see, read more, you look that up. Well, so far, we're still far from any connection to Chris Bunn and 1 Corinthians. <laughs> But Martin O. Massinger was in the that in those years was the president of Dallas Bible Institute, which later became Dallas Bible College, and he had retired from being the president. He did left. He wasn't president anymore. But when I, when Robin and I were there, he was uh, he was a, a Greek professor. He was the Greek professor, and he was my professor in Greek that guy who's mentioned here and in 1980 I wrote a uh, you know a 50 plus page paper on 1st Corinthians developing and developing and defending a theme of 1st Corinthians and I wrote it and this is it right here this is the very one it was kids it was typed on something called a typewriter and this is the one. If you can look through here and see places where a mistake was made, and then there's this stuff, liquid paper, you know, this white stuff, you then try to type it again, you know. It was, and so this, this paper was something all graduating seniors had to, you know, do something like this as a huge project. You know, if it was a, doc, if it was a doctoral level, it would be like a dissertation. And this paper, matter of fact, did you type this? Probably. Robin probably typed this. But uh, we were married. We were married a year. That, But in 1980, this paper won for me the Martin O. Massinger Award in Biblical Exposition. 
Yes, all right, all right. Thanks, Lee. Thank you. You know, this is the first time that's been cheered since 1980. When we, when we graduate, you know, when we graduated. And so, with a scholarly pedigree like that, you know, with that kind of borrowed glory, uh, you know, why in the world would I not ever have taught through? the book of first corinthians you know when i've got this award-winning research paper and what you know that won an award named after someone who actually got his name in this very important book (laughs) who's actually mentioned so you know the way i I look at it i'm practically a recognized authority on first corinthians i mean the fact that dallas bible college no longer exists and neither does the martin o massinger award in biblical exposition that's beside the point. <laughs> well, I have dared to begin reading this again. I don't know that I've ever read it since 1980. And if you really want an exercise in humility, just read something you wrote when you were in your 20s. <laughs> uh, you know, John Piper, I heard John Piper uh, say, I listen to a lot of sermons. When I, uh, John Piper, Bethlehem Baptist Church, is a favorite. And uh, I heard him say in a sermon, it might have been a really old sermon, but he, he said in this sermon I heard online, he said, everything I've ever preached is on the Internet somewhere, and it's humiliating. <laughs> and while it's been... You know, begin reading this. It's 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 humbling as always. It isn't nearly as bad as I was afraid it might be. But I already know that there are some things I didn't appreciate at all in 1980 uh, that today seem to jump right off the pages of First Corinthians. When I have said, and you know, I've, I've brought up Corinthians before, like never preached through the book, but, you know, have certain chapters and certain passages absolutely been taught. And when I have said anything about the church at Corinth, if you've been here long enough for me to hear me, you've, it's been more than once, I've always said it has to be, it's got to be the worst church in the whole New Testament. Uh, if there were, and I've said this many times too, if there were two churches in town, you'd go to the other one. You know, the most unsophisticated church shopper in all of Christendom, if they visited the church at Corinth, they would have enough sense to keep looking, (laughs) keep shopping. Uh, The church at Corinth was divided, deeply divided, sharply divided by party spirit, ugly divisions. You know, basically you could say that some people that thought of themselves and spoke of themselves as being on the the pastor emeritus's side you know they are where we really follow the uh, pastor emeritus and others said no we follow the main teacher you know the one of the central teachers that's there now and then there were others who said you know that they were uh, no 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 they followed the teachings of christ and the way they put it it was far superior to anything that the pastor emeritus would have ever you know that his brand was better his teaching was better and then the guy you know so that you you couldn't go there very long without people wanting to know you know which one are you are you a paulinist you know you're paulinist are you an apollosite apolloite are you are you a christian you know which one are you which one which group do you belong to 
Love is in short supply in this church. Explains first explains the thirteenth chapter. You know that that sermon in First Corinthians thirteen. And in the worst cases, you know this lovelessness. In the worst cases, it had to be the worst cases. Some church members had lawsuits against other church members. There's a general thoughtlessness concerning the welfare of others, particularly spiritual welfare. Everything at this church is about my rights, my expression of my gifts. I've got to do my thing. You know, my thing with the Lord, this is what I do. This is how the Lord and I work, and I've got to do it. And if it, you know, if it affects others adversely somehow, oh, well, it's all about me. It's all about my gifts. It's all about what I do and uh, and you know so too bad for anybody else if it if it affects them um, adversely somehow who cares it's about me and the Lord others really don't have anything to do with it the worship services if you kind of read First Corinthians and try to piece together what it would be like when that church gathered is a it's a chaotic mess which in some cases involves drunkenness. At a church event, at a communal meal that, that, that would incorporate observing the Lord's Supper. Some are drunk. Corinth itself was rife with sexual immorality, and the church had some of that too. There's a, there's a man, you know, famously, there's a man at the church in Corinth who, quote-unquote, has his father's wife. Now, the wording suggests a man, probably what this is, a man who's in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And if that weren't bad enough, the people in the church are proud that they're not judgmental about it. And it isn't as though, okay, we've got all these behavioral problems, but at least they're doctrinally together. You know, they got it all together doctrinally. Well, no, because we learn, chapter 15, that there are some people in this church who do not even believe in the resurrection of believers. I read the verse. I mean, I've preached this one many times. This is one, you know, the Resurrection Sunday. This is uh, uh, several times, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is, but this is what 15, 12 says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Can you imagine? You know, we have Sunday school downstairs and stairs, and, you know, we have discussions before and afterwards. A lot of times it's great. It's good. It's good that after Sunday school you're talking about spiritual things and biblical things and you know what the bible teaches in the kitchen afterwards can you imagine hearing someone a, you know member in good standing uh, saying well yeah you, you know i i believe that christ was raised from the dead i mean that's that's clear but you know i think for the rest of it you know if you're dead you're dead you're never gonna ever gone gonna be a union of body and spirit you're you're dead no we don't get resurrected why wouldn't that be kind of, you know, you'd think, there's a problem there. <laughs> or if you visited a church, you know, if you visit a church, you know, I'm thinking about going to this church and, and just trying it out, your church shopping, and then, and, but you pick that up in the conversation, you know, people saying, 
well, yeah, maybe Christ is resurrected, but I don't think we will be. No. No, that's just Christ. Or maybe even you could imply from 1 Corinthians 15 that they're doubting the resurrection of Christ, but I think that's what Paul's using to force them back into uh, affirming resurrection of believers. You know, if, if there's no resurrection, even Christ is not raised, and they wouldn't want to go there. So they'd probably say Christ was raised, yes, but we will never be. So, doctrinal problems, terrible behavior problems, terrible. You know, your worship services, just a, a mess, and the way people treat each other, and, and then, the, you know, the doctrine is, you've got some big problems. Really, really, it's just a terrible church as churches go. But here's what I don't think I... Uh, for many, many years, including when I wrote this, my place in history. <laughs> Here's what I don't think I, I fully appreciated. That the church at Corinth, in all of its, what would you say, anti-glory, you know, in all of its outrageousness, is a church in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the apostle it's a holy thing that God has made it's something set apart by God it's something set apart for God and it's to be regarded as such and Paul does regard it as such and God does regard it as such it's to be treated as such now, knowing, you know, I've kind of rehearsed some of the main problems at Corinth, but you probably knew about that when you, before you got here. But just thinking, keep those things in mind and listen to how this book begins, these first verses. He's Paul, by the will of God, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, that's who's writing it, to the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And you see the parallel there. If you're looking at your own Bible, which you should, you'll get more out of this if you do. You, there's a parallel there between the apostle says God's work in his life, my own life, and, and God's work in creating this church at Corinth. Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus because I was called by the will of God. He used the same word called to refer to the people. Those people are called. That church is called out ones. He says in the very first verse, he says, I'm called, you're called. We're all called together into this thing. It's, it's holy. It's of God. He calls them sanctified. He calls them saints. Holy ones is what it means. Holy ones. And the evidence for, at least in these verses, the evidence for that being having been sanctified is that the, it's the impulse of their spirit to call on the name of the Lord. You call on the name of the Lord. That shows that God has chosen you, called you out, you, has changed you. We sang, that's why we praise him. And in the song, that's why we praise him. It's because he gave his everything. But you know why you praise him? Because God sanctified you. 
He gave you that appetite. He gave you the will, the want to, the desire. He changed you. That's not how you were when you got here. I don't mean to the church, to the earth, <laughs> to life. And he continues. He says, grace is, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you. And who's the you? It's collective for that church. I give thanks to my God always for you. I mean, think about the, you know, what you already know about this church and the, Christ, and the people in it. I give thanks to God for you. Many years ago now, I'll t- and I'll tell you how long it was ago. This is a day of prayer right before we're standing in front of a city hall over here. Uh, with uh, There was a day of prayer uh, event scheduled, and, and it was a lunch hour thing, and... and uh, Several somebody organized a bunch of local pastors to uh, to to gather with people whoever could come and and just uh, lead in prayer. There's going to be a public portion. I think everybody was given you know all the pastor types were given like uh, three minutes to pray for whatever the assigned area was, of course. And then there was going to be time for group prayer in a lunch hour. But they, you got to you know you got to count these are preacher minutes. You know three preacher minutes and. So it kind of went long. But uh, people had different areas of prayer uh, assigned. I think I got, I think I got city, I got, I think I got city council, maybe the dog catcher or something like that. But the, but the, the pastor of the big Baptist church got the White House and fam- family and staff, everybody in the White House. And, uh, and he and the blo- and the one of the local black ministers they got this in the public part they got this cadence going it was a call and response we're all standing there and the you know and the the baptist pastor he's white the white baptist pastor said lord we something like this we thank you that we live in a country where we're free uh, free to worship you and then the, and the black men say, hey, men, Lord, hey, men. And then the Baptist pastor say, and Lord, we thank you for how you've blessed America over these years and centuries. And the other guy, hey, men, Lord, yes, Lord, amen. They had this thing going back and forth. You know, it's call and response, call and response. It was a Clinton, I don't want to be partisan here, but it was a Clinton administration. And it was right in the middle of that Lewinsky stuff with the, with the uh, affair with the intern and the way it was right then and the and the Baptist going back and forth back and forth and the Baptist minister said Lord we pray for our president Bill Clinton and the black minister said uh huh And in that, that's how we, it's how we pray for some folks, right? Some of our folks, our Christian folks, we said, oh, pray for, oh, yeah, got to pray for him. Got to pray for them. Remember to pray for someone. Oh, yeah. Lord, do something. Do something with them. 
I don't want to just stop. I'm stopping here to suggest there, that's not what this sounds like. And you know, you know about these people at Corinth, right? You know what kind of church this is. You know what kind. You know, you know what's going on there. Because Paul's going to tell us. That's how we know. Was what. He, but I mean, look at the tone of this here. I thank God for you. I thank God for this church. Because of the grace, I give thanks to my God always for you. I mean, not just, you know, as a preliminary to butter them up a little bit, soften them up for the harsh things that are coming. No, he's... He, I mean, is he telling the truth? I give thanks always for you. I think he is. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in <coughs> excuse me, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. The gifts and as even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom we were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now long ago, I would say, I noticed, I had noticed some of the implications for us as individuals. You know, what this means for individual Christian life. When you think about this church at Corinth and the kinds of things that people were doing, it's, it's, isn't it astonishing that, that Paul would describe them as having been sanctified in Christ Jesus? Having been, past tense, completed action. Now, they're still being sanctified, of course, but there's a some sense in which they have already been sanctified, set apart, made holy. You think, well, does that go for the most partisan of them? Does that guy, does that go for the fellow who would ask someone who's only been there a week or two, say, well, which side are you on? You're going to be on Apollos or Paul's or Christ's? Join my party. Does that go for him? Does it go for those who are, I mean, actually getting drunk at a church event? Does it go for them? Sanctified in Christ Jesus? Does it go for those who are suing each other? Does it go for the guy who has his father's wife, whatever that means? And the answer is, yes. It goes for every Christian, every genuinely saved person, everyone whom God has quickened spiritually through faith in Christ so that their heart, like there's other evidences, but the, the one that's identified early in this book, so that their heart has been changed, so that they, their heart wants to call out to Jesus, to call on God, like all Christians do, because God has sanctified them in Christ Jesus. You know, I used to think of sanctified in this sense, you know. In what sense could Christians 
ordinary Christians like us, we don't have to go these super bad ones, uh, you know, at, uh, at Corinth. Uh, just, uh, you know, everybody knows they're, has, has some, well, you would hope, some inkling of their own sin, right? In what sense can we be called, said to have been sanctified? And I used to think of that sanctified in that sense as, as positional or merely positional. And positional is the word we used. And positional means that our legal status uh, before God, our legal status, our paperwork, how God, our standing, is that we are, as far as God's concerned, our standing is that we are holy, we are set apart, we're sanctified. So positional means that our record, our, our record before God is one of pristine holiness. Our, our legal status is that of righteousness because there's been a legal exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness. We made the trade in faith. He takes the record of our sin. We get the record of his righteousness. And that is true as far as it goes. Particularly when we read, not in this book so much, but like in Romans, when we read about justification. The focus of justification really is a, a legal declaration of God that we are righteous. We have come in Christ's righteousness. We trade that exchange. And it's true as far as it goes. But salvation and the whole teaching of salvation in the New Testament, it's much, it, it, it's, it's much more than that. It's not just a change in status or legal status before God. It's that something actually happens to you, in you, so that you are not the same as you were before. Being born, well, born again, or born from above. That's not legal status. That's something actually being born in you. That's something, there's a new life toward God you didn't have before. That's not legal status. Being made alive to God. That's not legal position. That's not legal status. And having been sanctified is not positional. It is something God does in all those he saves. And that's where your heart, ladies, early verses, that's where your heart comes from to call out to God, to call out to Christ. That's, and a lot of other things come from there, too. That's where this uh, new conflicted relationship with sin comes from. You know, the Romans 7 experience where you hate it, but you do it. You hate that you did it. You confess, you repent, and then you might fall into it again, and you hate it again. Where did that conflict come? Something changed in you. You know, before Christ, it didn't bother you like that. You were fine with it, unless maybe you got caught. Unless maybe there were consequences, but the thing itself. It's where the it's where the zeal, that's where the care for others comes from. Where you want others to know Christ. Where does that come from? God changed you. That's where an appetite for the word of God comes from. 
where to where it's like food to your soul it's like food to you to be taught from it or to read it that's where that came from you weren't like that before God has become to you before you became to Christ in a genuine real God may be of a like a concept like a philosophical concept now he's Abba Father now he's someone you want to talk to now he's someone you want to hear from now he's someone you want to please where'd that come from something happened to you in you you were sanctified in Christ Jesus you were set apart and the New Testament strategy for changing people is always to argue from identity to behavior. Here's the, here's the whole, this is how it is all the time in the New Testament. How do you overcome this? How do you overcome that? It's, you are a child of God. This is what's true about you because of what Christ did in you. And this is how you should behave because of who you are. That's it. And you can outline a lot of New Testament books just like that. Ephesians 1 through 3, this is who you this is what is true. This is who you are. Ephesians 4 through 6, these are the implications, how you should behave because of what's true. Romans 1 through um, 11. Romans 1 through 11, it's what's true. This is what's this is what God has done for us in salvation. Romans 12 through 16, this is how you should behave because of who you are, because of what God has made you. And it never goes the other way. It never argues the other way. Here's what you got to do. You got to do these things so that you become a child of God. No, that's work salvation. It's the antithesis of the gospel. It always argues from identity to behavior. But what I've been slow to realize all these years, you know, kind of back to the subject, what I've been slow to realize is that what is true of the individual Christian is also true of the Christian church. It isn't do these things, believe these things so that you can be, you know, do everything right so that you can become a genuine, worthy New Testament church. It's instead of that, it's this is what this thing is that God has created. And it's more it's bigger than you and me. It's the church. You're a part of it. God made it. You're a living stone in it, but this thing is a has a life of its own. It's bigger than the sum of its part. It's a creation of God. It's something holy. It's something holy and precious in God's sight. And therefore, because of that's who you are, this is this is how you should behave. You know, this is how it should be. This is how it should be. And so that this Corinthian church, with all of its problems, and they're terrible. <laughs> it's, it's bad. It is something holy to God. It's something set apart. It's something God has created by a miracle of his grace, warts and all. I think back I think back to how quick I've been over the years to pass judgment on a church by saying that is, it, it, it is, it's not a church I mean it really isn't that the worst thing you can say 
that's not a church at all. It's not a church. It's no longer a church. It might be a social club. might be this. might be that. But it isn't a church because it falls short in big way, a lot of ways. You know, it falls short. In Revelation 2 and 3, there's some churches receiving very serious counsel from the Lord. But the Lord is much more gracious than, uh, you know, than, uh, than I've been in the past in patience and mercy. Here's an example. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and, and service and patient endurance, and that your, your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. It's Jesus talking to a church, something he calls a church. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, those are, now there are various theories about whether we should take those words at face value or whether that's imagery to something else, some other kind of false teaching and a like a spiritual idolatry against God that really doesn't involve, you know, actual sexual immorality. You know, so there's, you know, there's, it might be interpreted various ways. But no, either way, consider the long-suffering patience of the Lord of the church who still calls it a church, still calls it his, still claims it, still claims his authority over it and says, I gave her time to repent. How much time? (laughs) How much time could that be? You know, how long was Jesus patient with that situation? Uh, But this church at Thyatira is terrifically compromised, and yet Jesus doesn't insult it by saying, that's no longer... No, it's no longer a church at all. He calls them to correction, but he calls them to correction same way, same way he bases us on the basis that they are this holy creation of God and, and that you, therefore they should behave this way. Not so they can, can get to be that. Now, I, I think it can be compared to marriage, another of God's creations. The efficient says... Almost all the time. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. You know, you've heard that before, right? And that could be said at any wedding uh, between a man and a woman. And really, as far as we're concerned, Christian or not, right? That could be said, and those words would be true at any wedding you would go to, right? Even weddings that I wouldn't officiate because, uh, you know, one, one or both of them's not a believer and they don't, want, they don't intend to do the Christian thing. But still, it could be said truly what God has joined together and let no man put a sender because to enter into marriage is to enter into something that is of God, right? It counts with God. It's more than just an arrangement between two people, even if those two people think it's nothing more than an arrangement between them. Whether they know it or not, it's bigger than 
just an arrangement between them. It's a real thing in the eyes of God, and he has feelings about it. It's to partake in something holy. And yes, to defile it, to dishonor it, to abuse it, to destroy it, to defile, it's to defile something holy, to destroy something God has made, and it's therefore to sin against God. And most most people who marry, it's really the Christian ones too, of course, most people who marry have no really an idea, a really well-developed idea of what is meant by the words, also that might be said, the holy estate of matrimony. They maybe think of those words just in terms of tradition, nice traditional words, they might like it, or in terms of compliment. But most, most of them think of marriage as a, a means of securing personal happiness, right? Only rarely, even among Christians, do married people think seriously or deeply about how their marriage presents an honorable, worshipful picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Someone might say, well, I, I thought it was just a voluntary organization that... You know, no, it's more than that. Well, the church is like that. The church is like that. You might not have known it when you entered into it. You might not have recognized it as such, but it is something holy made by God. It's not just something to deliver spiritual... Uh, uh, benefits and and uh, services to you by coming to Christ and appealing to Christ to save us. You can't have one be one without the other. We became a part of God's church. It's bigger than us in our salvation. We've entered into God's holy of holies, and we're just walking around in it. We, whether we know it or not, we've come into something holy. You know, in Old Testament times, would you open it? Would you throw the curtain back in the Holy of Holies and go have a look around? No. <laughs> no. Only the high priest, only the one time a year, and they tie a rope on him in case he was dropped dead in there so they could pull him out. It's to, to be in this thing that God calls the church is to... Is to involve our some, ourselves in something holy and we impact that something for good or for ill we we have an impact on it and it's precious in god's sight it's more than the sum of its part god cares deeply about it whether we do or not and first corinthians maybe more than any other new testament book and it's really, it's why I chose it. And I, th I think we need it. I think everybody in this generation needs it because Christian life, really, in our generation, uh, all of our generation, whether you're young or old here, it's become thought of as so it's something deeply privatized, something, it, it, it's, it's just, you know, the vertical aspect has been dominant over everything. It's just me and the Lord, and it doesn't involve anybody else, just me and the Lord. Deeply privatized. And 1 Corinthians, more than any other New Testament book, I think, says, this is what you are together. This is what you've been made a part of. 
No, and it's not telling you to join it. It's telling you, if you're in Christ, you're in it. And here's how that knowledge of what we are together should affect what you do, what you say, how you feel about it. And I'm not, I'm really quite sure I did not get that as a young man. You know. I don't think I got that as a young man. And you're free to look at me as an old man now. But even if you do or you don't, I'm certainly older. And so maybe as we go forward, we'll not only get older together, but more mature together in our understanding of what it means to be a part of this thing that God has made us into together. His church. Now let's pray. Uh, Father, every soul you have saved through faith in Christ has, has had the seeds of holiness planted within uh, so that our hearts long for you. We delight in your truth so, we, we're, so that we're grieved by our own sins, so that we want to please you even when we fail to do so. But still you call us your holy ones. And you're building holiness in us by the work of your spirit. But you've also made us part of something bigger than ourselves, something more than the sum of its parts, something with a life and identity of its own, and something that's holy, set apart, precious in your sight, even if we have considered it lightly or, or wrongly. Bring our thinking and our doing and even our feeling into conformity with the reality of your work in us, not just in us each, but in us all together. Bless the church as the church hears and obeys your word. Grow the church as the fellowship of your people by granting a saving faith to any and many outside of Christ that we may know them and love them and love you together with them for all eternity we pray in the name of jesus amen could everybody stand with us as we sing to